There are sermon notes in your bulletin. You want to pull those out. This is the third study that we've had in this stanza. If you haven't been with us in previous studies, know that we've been working over the past almost 18 years through the 119th Psalm. And today we come to the final stanza, verses 169 to 176, as our study this month, trying to grab a grasp the significance of the entire psalm as well as this final eight verses and how it all fits into the big picture. We have said that the overarching theme of the 119th Psalm is that it is to a um, coming from an author that is in trouble, and he's saying, no matter what I face, no matter what I go through, I'm going to be committed to the Word of God. And so that is what we have seen in this incredibly long psalm, longest psalm in the Bible, longest paragraph in the Bible. And so far we've worked through verses 169 through 171. And if you look at your sermon notes, you see that it says the theme, the final pleas of the dependent and troubled man. And we're learning much about trials and much about going through difficulty through this incredible stanza, this incredible psalm. And so far what we've seen, and if Brian, you put that up on the screen, the the slideshow, we don't need to get the lights, keep the lights up. We, we, We have focused on Understanding trials, if you look at verse 169, the second half, it says, give me understanding according to your word. The Hebrew word there for understanding, comprehension, runs through scripture. And I'm not going to take you through everything we went through last week. And if you haven't been here in the previous studies, I encourage you to go back, get the podcast from the first two, because we went through a good background of this psalm. And we went through more detail uh, slideshow that went more into the concept of understanding we're just going to do a recap but remember this psalm is beautifully written it's a psalm that's written in an acrostic i make some clear on this it's the very first word of every line would follow the hebrew consonant that it is um that's being used there are 22 hebrew consonants we're in the last one so tau um as i say it verses 169 to 176 if you could read it in hebrew the very first word would begin with that Hebrew consonant to start every verse and shows the beauty of God, the wisdom of God, just how incredibly ingenious God is that he would have poetry like that and write like that so that we would not just think that God is just, I'm just going to drop off 10 commandments to you, okay? There's more to God and his literature shows it. We'll see it even today. So 169 talked about understanding. And so what we have said is understanding God's word in a trial is important. Give me understanding according to your word. And so what we said is that when we go through trials, they have a purpose to bring about your spiritual growth and hence your understanding. Okay, And we quoted James 1-2. And the key thing is if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God wisdom. That's understanding. Put it all together. Let me grasp what's going on. And so one last recap slide is this one where we said there are three possible ways to understand a trial from God's word for believers. Number one, God uses trials to give us understanding about his authority to discipline and judge us. And there's the reality that God can say, look, I know that you're walking faithful. I know that you've been doing good things. But the reality of it is, is I've got something greater to teach you. And maybe it's an aspect of humility and depth of humility that you never thought you needed to go to. 
I mean, none of us likes to think that, that God would take us through a trial just to teach us that. But he did with Job. And it's important to grasp how trials work. Number two, God uses trials to make us search out understanding his ways to deal with the trial, like in Psalm 119. So you go through a trial and all of a sudden you realize, man, I'm not the husband I need to be. I'm not the parent I need to be. I'm not the servant that God wants me to be. I need to understand sanctification better. It's through a trial that you're awakened and all of a sudden you start getting that kick in the pants where you start looking and searching out the scriptures. And so let me tell you, I find trials often in my own life to be used for this purpose. And then number three, God uses trials to give us understanding of his power to deliver us. And so we have seen how God took Israel to the edge of the Red Sea. He could have taken them another path, but he took them to the edge of the Red Sea. And we actually saw a verse where Moses cried out, you're going to get understanding now of God. Understanding, grasp who he is and see his power. And so we said that sometimes all three of these are operative in a trial. I don't know what God is trying to do in your trials, but God is trying to get you to have a better understanding of him. And here's what it's important to understand, and this is where we're taking our slides today, is the idea of problems. When you face a trial, there's always going to be three sources of problems. And theologically, if you understand these, you'll see that all problems come from these three sources. And number one is it comes from sin. Number two, it comes from enemies. Number three, it comes from a cursed world. Now, obviously, they can be interrelated, but let me just break these down, okay? Number one, it's important that you recognize when you have trials and problems, they, they, they come from sin. And each one of these can theologically be broken down even more, but you have your own sin and you have the sin of others. The one that you can control, the one that you can work on most is your own sin, right? Because, of, you know, if, if I lie, if I, you know, uh, cheat, if I do something that causes problems, if, I, I'm a, if I'm a thief and I get caught and I go to prison, then I've got to deal with that burden, right? And, and so in my own life, to the extent that I can minimize and try to walk holy then I can reduce problems and trials in my life. But the reality of it is, is there's, there's, there is sin in other people. And I hope no one gets upset with me, but I, got, I, found, this, I found this slide <laughs> online where it's these seven dolls, and it's the seven living dolls series. And each one of these dolls, I don't know who would buy these for their little daughter, but I don't know if you could read these. It's the doll of wrath, the doll of envy, the doll of greed, the doll of lust, the doll of vanity, um, sloth, gluttony, the seven deadly sins that are so well known. But I, I like this because I wanted to put this up with the idea is sin manifests itself in so many ways. And it's because of wrath and envy and greed, we have wars. And because of, you know, the fact that there's wrath and greed and envy that people, you know, just do mean things. And like this one here looks like with gluttony, they just, uh, you know, <coughs> um, the person looks like they got a knife. I don't know why they would have a knife. But it's just, we read all the time in the newspapers of just incredible crimes and, and, and viciousness. And you sometimes say, well, these people are just wicked. And so whether it's somebody that robs you, somebody that attacks you, somebody that 
that sexually goes against you. If, you know, this could be on a corporate level. This could be on a national level. This could be um, just your next-door neighbor who gives you all kinds of problems. You know, you, you have a next-door neighbor that is um, <coughs> just rude, okay? Um, and they, they cause you problems. So sin comes in from other people, and that causes you trials. Number two, we have enemies, and this is the cover of a book. I wasn't going to put a picture of Satan up, but when you look at enemies, it's important that, that you recognize they're in two realms. They're satanic, and then I got this from Mad Magazine, from people, uh, that the fact that you have the two spies, okay, that they're always enemies in that magazine. But it's important for us to remember passages like Ephesians 6 that our battle is a spiritual battle, and there is a Satan. There are demons we have to remember with the idea of enemies that they don't like us. And, and we've studied in the book of um, uh, books of the Bible where there, there is a hedge that God puts around us. And he does protect, like in the book of Job, where he did protect. And this is what I, I humbly ask God. I don't want Satan's influence in my life. I don't want demonic forces in my life. I, I know that they exist. And it's foolheartedly for me to think that they don't exist. The Bible's very clear. Put on the armor of God. Go back and read it. But then I read the Psalms, and it's very evident whether it's Satan's influencing people. You know, you read over and over and over. David is dealing with enemies. Jesus is dealing with enemies. And when we get so many trials, they come from enemies. You know, sometimes people sin. It's just the person speeding down the road. They're not an enemy, but they cause you to maybe get into an accident. But here, I want... focus on the fact that there are people who are aggressively coming against us because they don't like us and sometimes we give them reason not to like us but sometimes they just don't like us because we're christian because that is the spiritual dynamic that we've got going on it's critical that you recognize that your problems come because of people who are enemies and then lastly remember it is a cursed world that we have to deal with Um, It's not Murphy's Law, as I always like to say, as to why things go wrong, but God's curse. And here's a quote from Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and traveleth and travaileth in pain together until now. It's critical that we understand that when Adam and Eve sinned, not a myth story, but a true story that Adam and Eve sinned, that God put the entire world under a curse. And the world has things go wrong because God wants us to know that things are not right. And, you know, where your cars rust, things just break, things happen all the time that just, you wonder, how in the world could that happen? Okay, that, that this breaks down, this doesn't work out. It's because the world is under a curse and the whole world groans until that curse is lifted. So problems come because we live in a cursed world. And how you deal with these problems as a Christian matters. Will you be better? Okay? Or will you be bitter? Okay? Or I'm going to put better. And here I got this from Answers in Genesis where, you know, this person is dealing with the death of a loved one and it says, some God of love you are. Why did you do this? Okay? And there's this, you know, gut-wrenching punch he feels why did you do this, God? Because we know God can stop anything. And, you know, I know for myself, when I go through trials and God doesn't stop something, God allows something, 
it's one of the hardest trial aspects that I can tell you because I've been praying there's been things I've prayed for where I said you know God I don't want this to ever happen and over the past few months I've been revealed where God has allowed certain things that have happened that have been incredibly hard for me to deal with and the question for me is do I become better bitter or better and then I don't know if you can see because it's in Christ that we are to become better and I thought instead of putting a picture of Jesus up here or, you know, something where just a big smiley face, I thought this would picture what I'm really trying to get at. Because the word Christ here is, is filled in with all these different attributes of hope and spirit and maybe love and faith and, and spiritual gifts. And really what Christ is doing in each and every one of us is molding us and shaping our character. And so in Christ, we, I hope that all of us are becoming better, better for what we're facing, okay? And so that's my hope in the midst of a trial, that I will become better and that you'll become better, all right? So now let's... I'm not getting a, Brian, I'm not getting anything. Can you manually take it to the next slide? It's, I think it's, it's the last slide anyway. What's that? Brian, can it, it won't go? It doesn't matter. Let's continue to see how the psalmist handled his trials in Psalm 119. So turn there and know this. If, if you look on your sermon notes, we've been talking about there's pleas and there's affirmations. There's, I think, eight pleas, and I'm, I told you I'm not numbering these all out. I'm just going to work through them, and I'm going to tell you when we're working through a plea, and then we're going to work through these affirmations. And so far, we've worked through several pleas and one affirmation. As we come to verse 172, let me just read. It says, let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. And as the, as the psalmist writes this, we come to a verse that incorporates several ideas. One is that of the importance of singing in worship to God. And second, the fact that we base our hopes on God's promises, meaning we trust in what he, um, meaning we trust in what he says, not in what we hope, okay? So let, let, let's look at this. It's fascinating to me that we've worked through 171 previous verses, and for the first time in this psalm, we have the psalmist deal with singing, okay? I, I was blown away when I thought that. I mean, you gotta be kidding me. I thought singing would be all through this psalm and it hit me like wow we're not because the reason i said that is because the concept of singing in the psalms is like in one-fourth of all the psalms i went through and i counted all the psalms and i counted 40 out of the 150 psalms deal with singing carl referenced psalm 33 that's gonna be one of the psalms we're gonna reference this morning because <laughs> i don't know how in the world you did it but we'd all we work together and psalm psalm 33 won't you turn there right now psalm 33 is just a psalm that I, I picked out this morning. I said, we got to look at this because it's one of the many calls to do what we as Christians are supposed to do, as believers are supposed to do. It's just to sing. sing look, psalm 33 says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with lyres. Sing praise to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright. 
All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of loving kindness of the Lord. And then Carl picked up in verse 6. But look, sing, sing, sing. Listen, I can take you through verse after verse after verse after verse. And the call is sing. And here's the interesting thing that I have found in my Christian walk is that there's all these times there are people who don't come to church until the singing is done. And I say to myself, how could you do that? How could you also be someone that doesn't want to sing? Christianity is, godliness is, is, is something in which we're called to sing and, and to praise God through our songs, with our voices, with our musical instruments. I, I find it absolutely fascinating. I got this verse for you to look at. I find it incredible that all from the, as far back as we can go in human history, People were called to sing. We're singing about God. Turn to Job 36. Job is right before Psalms. Um, Job 36. And in Job, if you're unfamiliar with this book, I highly recommend you study it. it. We believe it was the first book of the Bible written, even before Genesis... <coughs> Excuse me. Although Genesis obviously t- takes us right from the beginning, Job is thought to be written a, for a time period that occurred around 2200 BC, maybe before 2500 BC. And I find as you go through Job, we learn so much about ancient man. And he, he, this is long before the, the the Old Testament was written. Before any other scripture is written in Job chapter 36. Verse 24, this is when one of Job's friends, I think the man that has things right, Elihu, remember his first three friends are bad, but I think the fourth one is right on. Elihu is rebuking Job, but he says something really interesting in verse 24. And, and as, I'll pick up the context, he says in verse 22, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed him his way? And who has said you have done wrong? Like, nobody can say that to God. But then he says this, Remember that you should exalt his work of which men have sung. And I think to myself, isn't that fascinating? I mean, that, that people were singing about God in 22 and 2500 B.C.? And I, and I think to myself, it's like it's inherent. It's almost like this is something that mankind has always been doing. We've always been supposed to be singing of God. And then you come to the Psalms, and you have Psalm 33 is just one of 40 different Psalms where there's this exhortation, sing, 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 our model being sing, sing, sing. And then when you come to the New Testament, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And, and, and Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament, here's this command. If someone was saying, well, you know, I, I don't think I really have a good voice. I'm not as good a singer as Pastor Mike, and I shouldn't be singing. Okay, that's a big joke, okay, because you know I'm a horrible singer. But I know that I need to sing. Listen, I don't know, you know, how many of you have ever been told, I know when you're singing because you're so bad. <laughs> that's what people have told me, all right? But nothing's going to stop me from singing. Unless I've got, if you see me in the front row and I'm not singing, it's because my voice is either strained or I've got my cold or something because I want to sing. And here, look at Ephesians chapter 5, okay? Verse 18, this is all how we should be walking. And this is in the section of the book of Ephesians about how we walk. And he says in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation. And it's, it's wastefulness. It's not good. We're, we're not to be people who are going out and getting drunk. 
but be filled with the Spirit. You say, okay, I want to be filled. I want to be influenced by the Spirit. Okay, you know, like when someone goes out and they drink and all of a sudden they start acting differently, okay, because of alcohol. The way we are supposed to be just letting the Holy Spirit work in our lives is like alcohol works on a person. Okay, in the sense that it leads them and directs them to do things, we are supposed to let the Spirit of God lead us and direct us. And under control, not craziness, okay? But look at how the control plays out. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for, for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ the God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the, in the um, fear of Christ. What you have, you know, what I wanted to focus on is not only does he say that we speak in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but we, he literally says singing. By singing, you're going to be filled with the Spirit. How crazy is it to me that some people say, well, I don't like to sing. And I've been part of churches where... People have hung out outside in the forums to, uh, where, where they don't want to come in until the singing's done. And that's not right. And, and you know somebody's like that? You let them know it's not right. Um, so the reality of it is, is God wants us to be people who sing. And, and um, if you'll turn to one last verse, go back into the Old Testament. This was quoted, uh, yeah, I use this in... Um, Marjorie Clark's funeral, because I thought it was so appropriate for her who loved to sing. Uh, but I think it's important for all of us to grasp and all of us to know the concept of how important singing is and how it fits even with our passage. In Psalm 96, verse 1, Old Testament, Psalm 96, verse 1, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim the good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations. So Psalm 96. And it goes on, it says, Tell of his glory among the nations. Tell of his wonderful deeds among all the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are, are in his sanctuary. Why does he bring up creation? Because if God can make creation, he can do anything. As so if God was weak in creation, you can understand that he's not as powerful but we believe god is a great god but listen did you all catch that line i love that line verse one sing to the lord a new song why a new song because a, so much of what the hebrews did what the jewish people did was when god did something great they would put it to song and and songs weren't just always about uh, you know, God, there, there were songs in the Old Testament that referenced um, David and the wonderful things he did. So I, I want you to be aware of that. But the reality of it is, is th this is a call to say, listen, when God does something good, put it to song. Sing a new song. Sing a new song of what God has done. We give God the credit. And, and so when we think of singing, it, it's something that should come from the heart and it's a true form of praise. And if you go back to Psalm 119 now, and to me, like I said, as we're coming to the end, and the psalmist is under this trial, and he's under this pressure, when he says in verse 172, let my tongue sing of your word, 
I believe as he makes the affirmation for all your commandments are righteousness, he's saying, let me, let me sing out of what you say and what you promise and what you, in essence, do. Now, the word, remember, there's different Hebrew words for the word word. There's a, the most common is the Hebrew word dabar. And here, though, is the Hebrew word, I want to make it, say it right, Inra, okay, which is more sometimes a promise. And so some of your verses might even have that where he says, let my tongue sing of your promise. Uh, let, me, let me, in the sense that this is something that you said and it's going to come through and I'm going to trust in you, God. I'm going to trust in whatever you've promised and, and whatever you, in essence, have decreed. And so as we look at this, it's a, it's a great way of just uttering out Incredible praise for God and recognition that he is like almost like counting it that God's going to get it done because he believes in God. He trusts God's going to work things out. I look at, I just as a note, for those of you who like really like to get into the study of, of how God even writes things out, there's a little bit of Hebrew parallelism here in the sense where you see in verse 171 and 172, they, they follow the same pattern verses 169 and 170 did the same thing and now we come to 171 and 172 and let me just show you because you see in verse 171 he had lips but then you come to 172 and the emphasis is on tongue i mean why the lips why the tongue he could have said let my voice let my let my singing give you praise okay but whether it's lips or whether it's tongue it sort of personalizes it. It makes it more a part of you. It's the only thing I could think of. It's more of a, a distinct way of p- picturing it. And so he says, let my lips um, utter praise in, ver- in verse 171. And the word for utter there means to spew forth. Sometimes it's even used when a kid belches or someone belches. All right? And, and, and what that conveys is an intense sense of like, let it just flow out what praise but instead of using praise in the next line he talks about singing and the verb is to sing sing of your words sing of your promises and then he comes to the affirmation and so if we're moving through this and he says for all your commandments are righteousness all that you're all that you decree basically in the sense what whatever you say goes i'm gonna accept it and, and um, as I was working through that book I've shared with you before that by my professor, Dr. Zemek, he, the word commandments there, I thought it was really interesting. He says this is like one of the few times in all of Scripture where you can look, well, what, this is one of the places in Scripture where you can look at this is not only what's been decreed, but whatever God would put forth in the future. Okay, so like, you know, it's not necessarily just saying, okay, God, you have, um, you've commanded um, deliverance for Israel, but maybe it's the fact that you're going to command deliverance for me in this specific situation where I'm going to be, be saved out of this trial that I'm in, okay? So I like that. I, I like the sense that in essence, it shows he's trusting in whatever God's going to be sovereign over, whatever God's going to decide. And I think that shows your heart's trust in God, okay? 
I want to just sing. I'm going to praise. I'm going to trust you, God, however you're going to make the decision how this plays forth, okay? Um, and note, I, I just wanted to take a side note, because we often talk about singing in a church and how important singing, singing is. And when I deal with singing, there's always different differences of opinions what some people like this type of music and some people like that type of music and i just wanted to tell you when i was in seminary um one of my professors irv Buznich, gave me a theology that has always stayed with me it's always stuck with me on how to approach music in a church and there are three principles that i believe that if you have this is what he put forth theologically you've got good music to sing in church number one is the words have to be in truth, okay? John 17, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. So many passages you could talk about truth. Whatever words we sing should be words that reveal truth. Second, music must have an order. 1 Corinthians 14, everything be done in order. So that, you know, if I was playing the drums, I would just bang away and not have any order, okay? I would just bang away, and I couldn't even keep a beat. I wish I could. But I recognize people who can keep a beat have an order, and you can sense it, and you can hear it, even for us who can't keep a beat, okay? So you want to have an order instead of someone just coming up and playing some screeching type of music, or even just, it would be nice slow music, but it didn't have an order. It should have some type of order, because God references everything being done in order. And then number three, words must be understood. So, like, when I talk, I need to be understood. When I sing, I should be understood. 1 Corinthians 14, in the sense of things being understood. And, and when you have that, instead of somebody just coming up and screaming into a mic where you can't understand their words, then you, a microphone, you would, have, you would have something unintelligible if they were doing that. But if you can understand the words, you can have an order in the music, you can have truth being sung, then... Use that as your criteria to determine, oh, this is music that's good or versus music that's bad. And then obviously we all have our preferences, slow music, fast music, things like that. But it's important to recognize what is a preference and what is not. Okay, that's just a side note. Verse 172, though, as it moves through, gave us both the plea and then the affirmation. Because he says, look, I want to sing but I'm going to make the affirmation. I absolutely hold that what you decide always meets the right standard. However, whatever you command, your commands are the right standard. But now he goes into one more affirmation. We're going to try to get through this one. Verse 173, let your hand be ready to help me. And here's a plea. Showing as if like God had a hand. And, and, and like, at least God the Father. We know Jesus does, but you know the idea of picturing parts of God uh, you know, being able to come down, whether it's his eyes or his hand here, it's part and parcel of us looking at God as, as having these attributes, but it's more just the idea of them symbolic, I think at this point, representing his power. Um, the, whether it's a hand or whether it's an arm, often in Scripture it represents God's power. And, and it's like, basically, come here to help me, God. And turn over to Psalm, what is it? One, let me see, Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is a, is a passage that is one of numerous ones where God's hand is pictured of his power, his ability to come through, his, his ability to, to deliver. 
Psalm 80, verse 17. I thought it was fascinating as I started going through these. Um, as the, the psalmist is imploring uh, um, God to help in the midst of a calamity, he says this in verse 17, Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you've, you've made strong for yourselves. Then we shall turn back from... Uh, then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. And so verse 17, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. The right hand was a position of honor. And, and so here I need your help. And Psalm 139 verse 10, Psalm 32 verse 4, even Isaiah 5 verse 25, the concept of God's hand being used to bring about deliverance. And so if you go back to Psalm 119, he says, let your hand be ready to help me. It's a plea, you know, I need your help. And it's a plea of humility. And, and, and this is what has been emphasizing throughout this psalm, how we need God's help. And when you come to a trial, and, and most of the times, like, you know, like if I was facing a trial and, and I was like, okay, all of a sudden I got hit with this big financial trial, and I say, well, I need to empty my bank account. Oh, well, then I've emptied my bank account. And then, I, and then I go to my friends and I say, can you help me out? And they empty their bank accounts. And then I go to a family member and they help me out. But when you come to the finally point where you're bankrupt and there's no one that can help you, there's the sense of humility where you finally say, God, I can't solve this. And I can tell you, if you're in a marriage situation, if you're parenting, you know, and, and you, know, you think you've got it all together, or you're in a business situation, and all of a sudden something happens where you have no control then this psalm, I think, line becomes all the more prevalent to you because there's a sense like, God, I need you to come in. I need you to sovereignly step in. I need your help. I need your hand to come in and bring about the solution. Okay? And look at the last half of this verse. For I have chosen your precepts. And I find this absolutely not by mistake, not by accident. And I tell you, this would be so easy to miss if we were not doing verse-by-verse verse teaching here. He says, for I have chosen your precepts. This is now, as we move on your sheets again, this is an affirmation. And did you catch what he's done here? The significance. He's taken a Hebrew word that is a very common, was a very common Hebrew word. The Hebrew root stem is, I think, Bahar, to choose. And the word to choose has become one of the most theologically important words in especially the Old Testament. It's the idea of what choice have you made? What decision from a human perspective have you made? And I want you to understand this. As Dr. Zemek noted, he said, this common word does not get used big theologically until Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 where the hearers are admonished to choose life. And then in the classic passage of Joshua 24, who are you going to choose, right? And everyone thinks about that. So turn back. I, I know that often people go back to the Joshua passage, Joshua 24, you know, choose you this day who you're going to follow. Well, you know that one irritates me because that one, when Joshua finally quotes that, he's already said, I've chosen the Lord, but you choose who, whatever God you want. Turn back to Deuteronomy 30. And, and here is where that word choose I, is first used in the Bible as a way of making the decision, a, a public affirmation, if you will, as to what you believe. And so in, ja in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, um, 
we're coming to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. God, remember Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Moses is about to exhort the people that are going to go into the land, and he's giving them these exhortations. And he, and he comes, and he says this in verse 15. He says, see, I have set before you today life, prosperity, death, and ad- adversity. Now, obviously, he's laid out the Mosaic Covenant. We understand that. But we, we grasp the very essence. He's laid out what God has promised them to bless the people of Israel with. And he says in verse 16, In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you that you will surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. And here you should star this verse, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. Now, when he says I'm calling heaven and earth, it's like I'm calling God. <coughs> it's, it's calling upon God, okay, to witness against you today. That I have set before you life and death. Basically, I've taught you, I've told you everything that's, that's at stake. The blessing and the curse. And here's our word, Bahar. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and to, to give them. This idea of make a decision, choose what you're going to follow, and obviously it's going to impact not only the moment, but what is subsequently to come. You see... When you grasp the understanding of this concept of choosing, we know there's the doctrine of election. We know there's the doctrine where God is sovereign. From a human perspective, though, there are responsibilities on our side. And I believe this is coming from our human responsibility. And when you go back to Psalm 119, and if you'll turn there and and look at what, what is being charged here, what is being done In Psalm 173, he says, let your hand be ready to help me. Help me because I have chosen your precepts, precepts, your principles. I want you, God, to know that I am standing with you and I've chosen you. And, And it's important. This is what I've told you as we go through trials and we go through difficulties. How important it is before you get into the midst of a trial to say, look, I know what I want to do. I'm going to I'm going to stay with God. I'm going to be someone that's going to honor God. I've chosen God. And, and I want God, I'm calling out to God to honor this. Honor my choice. I need your help. And from my human perspective, I want to say, God, you can count on me. You're someone that I'm, I've given my heart to. And, and, and I don't want to say, you know, I, I can say today, well, the only reason I know I'm saved is because I know God's worked in my life. And I know that God's brought about me, uh, my salvation, and he's elected me. But at the same time, I, I don't want to discount my human responsibility. And my human responsibility and your human responsibility is to say, from your perspective, choose God. And, and, and don't be ashamed to say in prayer, God, I've chosen you. I, I, I've, from my perspective, I'm making an affirmation that I'm on your team. I think that's along the lines of what this is really going to. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid to claim that. And that's what the psalmist has done here. And the idea of precepts and remember his principles. I'm going to honor you. And, and I've said this, you know, in the midst of a trial, it's so good that you can remember back and say, okay, God, I know what I've stood on. I know what, I, what, what, what my commitment is. And I believe it will make you stronger. So I wrote this. So in conclusion, 
Each of you have time, talents, and treasures you'll, that are going to be used in a trial this year. How that's going to come out, I don't know. My hope is that you stay faithful to God, and a key way to do it is to commit now. Right today, make this choice. What are you going to do? Are you going to choose God from your perspective? Would you say, Lord, I want to affirm this month your commitment, my commitment to you, this day my commitment to you? Now, you get saved, you know that, you definitely give credit. God, I know that you're the one who elected me. I know the one that you, you chose me. But I want you to know that I, from my perspective, as much as I can, as much as I can recognize who I am, I'm choosing you. I came across this article this week. It was called, it's interestingly, it was called The Desire for Salvation. Basically, it's a desire for help. Listen to this. This author wrote, the well-known scientist and author Carl Sagan, in a PBS documentary titled Chariots of the Gods, commented on the new optimism that scientists of the day had, that there is life elsewhere in the universe. And it was interesting that this is what Sagan said. It's nice to think that there is someone out there that can help us. Like, if we can find E.T., he's there to help us. The author goes on to say this, Unfortunately, this remark implies that for Sagan, there is no God. And so his hope of help from other beings is a blind hope, a hope that assumes that other beings exist and that their race will not be affected with the depravity that is so evident in all human endeavor and that they would be interested in helping us. See, what Carl Sagan and the people of the real world realize is they need help. Like you and I should realize there's going to be times, maybe today you don't need help, we always need help, but more pressing help. But whether, whether you're facing your own sin, enemies, a cursed world, you're going to always need God's help. And my hope and my desire is that please, like what are in this psalm, are please that you will use affirmations that are in this psalm, you will use as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for having a person go through a trial and having him leave the words that he's left us. We don't know how this trial turned out for him. It could have just been that he died and you took him to heaven. It could have been that you did deliver him. It could have been that you resolved the situation and you defeated his enemies before his face. I don't know how trials are going to be played out in everyone here. But I do know that one day when everything's said and done, you'll wipe away every tear. Okay? Oh, but God, in the meantime, how we look for trials to be solved today, how we look for trials to be resolved in what we're facing, whether it's marital trials, whether it's parenting trials, whether it's family trials, whether it's economic trials, whether it's job trials, whether it's government trials, whether it is friendship trials, neighborhood trials. God, they just seem sometimes to be so overwhelming. But God, today I'm hoping that everyone in this room would say, you know, Lord, no matter what I face, I will look at your commandments as being righteous. And I'm always going to choose to do your way. And whatever you decide to solve the situation, I'm going to accept your sovereignty in this situation. But no matter what I face and no matter what I'm tempted with, Lord, I'm choosing your ways. I'm going to honor you. Oh God, how I pray that as we go into 2018 that everyone here who's made that affirmation today would be blessed and could give testimony if you don't return in 2018 and 2019 
that because they've, they've affirmed you, they've affirmed your ways, it strengthened them and made them more resolved for what they'll face. Oh God, how I love this congregation. I love the people and I just ask for their protection because we know the evil one is strong. We know that sin never seems to leave us and leave other people. And so we know we're gonna face trials in this cursed world until the day you return. Oh, how we hope that you return tonight. But in the meantime, if you don't, may we all handle our trials faithfully. In Christ's name, amen.